Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Every talk on this podcast was originally delivered at an in-person event for university students, perhaps for one of our Thomistic Institute chapters on a university campus or at a Thomistic Institute retreat or conference. These lectures and events are happening around the country and around the globe all the time. To learn more, visit us at www.thomisticinstitute.org and sign up for our email list. We'll keep you posted about what's happening next. And finally, please subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to like and share these recordings with your friends because it matters what you think. It is an uncontroversial fact that the Catholic Church as a whole is still very much living in the difficult process of receiving the teaching of the Second Vatican Council. The Council's longest and in certain ways most complex document is the pastoral constitution of the Church in the modern world, Gaudium et Space. And its arguably most famous passage is Gaudium et Space 22. Christ being the full revelation of man to man himself, as the English translation puts it. This is what the Council Fathers state. Quote, the truth is that only in the mystery of the incarnate word does the mystery of man take on light. For Adam, the first man, was a figure of him who was to come, namely Christ the Lord. Christ, the final Adam, by the revelation of the mystery of the Father and his love, fully reveals man to man himself and makes his supreme calling clear. He who is the image of the invisible God is himself the perfect man. To the sons of Adam, he restores the divine likeness, which had been disfigured from the first sin onward." Unquote. According to the Council Fathers, in accord with the witness of the Holy Scriptures and of tradition, Christ's redemptive work is a work of restoration. Christ's redemptive work restores the divine likeness disfigured from the first sin onward. Yet any restoration presupposes something lost and in need of restoration. In the case of Christ's redemptive restoration of our divine likeness, what is presupposed is an original state that antecedes the first sin, the disfigurement of the divine likeness. This afternoon, I wish to offer some theological reflections on a few aspects of Thomas Aquinas's subtle and complex account of this original state of inchoate divine likeness. Medieval theologians used a technical term for this original state, justitia originalis, original justice or righteousness. Not only was St. Thomas the one medieval theologian who treated this topic most extensively, but he also initiated a theological tradition outside of the Thomist tradition even, that reaches into the 19th and 20th century. One only needs to read the dogmatic theologies of the leading 19th century German theologian, 
Matthias Joseph Schaben, right now being translated into English, his famous Handbook of Catholic Theology, and of the 20th century Francophone Swiss theologian, Charles Cardinal Chonet. This tradition takes the human being in the original state as the homo supernaturalis, the primordial reference point in the beginning for, the, for Christ's redemptive work of restoration. The via salutis, the way to salvation, does not begin with an always already naturally fated fallenness, but rather with a homo supernaturalis, original humanity created in the divine likeness and in primordial, inchoate friendship and communion with God. The original homo supernaturalis is the figure of the new Adam, Christ, the incarnate Logos, the God-man or Theosanea, who restores the lost divine likeness to us. Without original humanity, the first sin, that is the fall, and the subsequent disfigurement of humanity by original sin and actual sins, hangs suspended in thin air and therefore eventually comes to denote an always already extant common predicament. Absent the homo supernaturalis, an alternative, purely naturalistic scenario begins to invade and occupy the Christian imagination in the modern period, humanity emerging through the evolutionary process from a long line of biological ancestors and carrying in its genes, instincts, and neurological constitution the condition for the possibility of survival and of species flourishing all the necessary characteristics of a super predator who eventually conquered the planet. In this alternative scenario, the fall is at best simply a mythopoetic symbolization of humanity as such in the ongoing process of its evolution, always caught in the ambiguities between good and evil, that is between the advantageous and the harmful in regard to its flourishing, always already of its always aware of its finitude and living within the horizon of death that is always in anticipation of one's own death, dominated by unruly instincts and passions, infinite desires, the will to power, and the inherent inconsistency of one's willing. All of this understood as the natural condition of the human being, as an advanced primate, in the still evolving process of the biological subspecies Homo sapiens sapiens. In such a scenario, Christ does not restore anything, but rather, at best, announces the future divine humanity to come by way of a purportedly civilizing evolution of human values. Christ, the moral paradigm of an emerging eventual reign of universal love, of a definitive rule of justice and peace on earth and with all of creation. In this scenario, Christ, through his life and witness, announces and anticipates a future divine likeness. Yet quite obviously, he does not restore anything that once obtained. To put it differently, in this alternative scenario, there is no redemptive work of Christ. I cannot repress a striking line from the well-known 20th century Protestant theologian H. Richard Niebuhr, the brother of the even more famous Reinhold Niebuhr. I think I put that in for Mike Root. Um, a line that fittingly unmasks the theological deficit 
of this alternative scenario, quote, a God without wrath brought man without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross, unquote. Such a revisionist Christology seems to exert a considerable attraction on contemporary theology. With the past having been occupied by evolutionary science, so to speak, all that seems to be left for theology is the future. Yet this is a dangerous illusion, because without a distinct salvation historical beginning, there is no terminus a quo that would give orientation to the terminus ad quem. Emergentism would make Christ himself the figure of some future God-man, the typus for an antitypos still to come. Yet such a construal would flatly contradict the web of salvation history between the primordial past of a definite terminus ad quo and the promised future of a terminus ad quem, the theological center and middle point being the incarnation. This is unequivocally affirmed by Gaudium at Space 22. Christ's mission is to restore the likeness of God. Yet a restoration presupposes a loss or a privation and an original state in which the divine likeness obtained. Thomas Aquinas sees God's original intention and humanity's original state theologically expressed in Nuce in Ecclesiastes 7.30, God made man right. Quod feci Deus hominem rectum. God created humanity in perfect rectitude, according to Aquinas, and that is in divine likeness. This original divine likeness is present in original humanity as the closest possible initial union with its supernatural end, God. And that initial union with God issues happiness and bliss. Human nature is rightly ordered interiorly and as a whole to God. Original humanity is living in an inchoate, inchoate communion with God by way of faith, hope, and charity. In short, in friendship with God. The closest possible incipient communion with God short of the beatific vision. This is the theological vision of the original state Aquinas proposes. And I would like to submit, it is nothing less than a theological proposal like this one that Gaudium et Space 22 stands in need of in order to undergird its central Christological claim. At this point, however, it is apposite to name what has become the probably greatest difficulty for a recovery of the theological truth St. Thomas intends with his account of what I call in the following the original homo supernaturalis. St. John Henry Newman, in a prescient chapter called The Form of Infidelity of the Day of his rightly famous The Idea of a University, called this obstacle, quote, the special effect of modern sciences upon the imagination, prejudicial to revealed truth, unquote. Let me quote John Henry Newman somewhat at length. He could have written these lines yesterday, and they pertain directly to our topic at hand. Quote, there are those enemies of the faith and of the church who hope. There are those who are sure 
that in the incessant investigation of facts, physical, political, and moral, something or other, or many things, will sooner or later turn up, and stubborn facts too, simply contradictory of revealed declarations. A vision comes before the faithful, these enemies would anticipate of some physical or historical proof that mankind is not descended from a common origin, or that the hopes of the world were never consigned to a wooden ark floating on the waters, or that the manifestations on Mount Sinai were the work of man or nature, or that the Hebrew patriarchs or the churches of Israel are mythical personages, or that St. Peter had no connection with Rome, or that the doctrine of the Holy Trinity of the real presence was foreign to primitive belief." Unquote. In the roughly 170 years since Newman originally wrote these lines, these claims have been not only posited by historical critical exegetes, by paleoanthropologists and by paleogeneticists, rather they also have become established prejudices informing countless novels, movies, and other popular media, and hence exercise a formidable influence on the public imagination, increasingly prejudicial against revelation as conveyed by the inspired scriptures. And so continues Newman quote, these enemies of the faith thrust into the influence of the modern sciences on what may be called the imagination. When anything which comes before us is very unlike what we commonly experience, we consider it on that account untrue, not because it really shocks our reason as improbable, but because it startles our imagination as strange. While reason and revelation are consistent in fact, they often are inconsistent in appearance, and this seeming discordance acts most keenly and alarmingly on the imagination, and may suddenly expose a person to the temptation and even hurry them on to the commission of, def of definite acts of unbelief, in which reason itself really does not come into exercise at all. I mean, let a person devote himself to the studies of the day, let him take in and master the vastness of the view thus afforded him of nature, its infinite complexity, its awful comprehensiveness, and its diversified yet harmonious coloring. And then, when he has for years drunk in and fed upon this vision, let him turn round to peruse the inspired records or listen to the authoritative teaching of Revelation, the book of Genesis, or the warnings and prophecies of the Gospels. And he may certainly experience a most distressing revulsion of feeling, not that his reason really deduces anything from his much-loved studies contrary to the faith, but that his imagination is bewildered and swims with a sense of the ineffable distance of that faith from the view of things which is familiar to him with its strangeness and then again its rude simplicity as he considers it and its apparent poverty contrasted with the exuberant life and reality of his own world." Unquote. About 170 years after Newman described this widespread dynamic with striking accuracy, the contemporary popular imagination is deeply informed by the imminent frame of an ateleological evolutionary process in which the only fleeting teleology left 
is the one created by the desires and longings that the purportedly sovereign subject entertains in alleged autonomy. An imagination shaped in such a way can receive Genesis 3 at best as a quasi-philosophical myth analogous maybe to the myth in Plato's Timaeus or worse, something along the lines of Tolkien's Silmarillion, a culturally fascinating but purely literary etiological narrative of origins and failures of good and evil, undoubtedly a treasure of primitive religio-cultural human ingenuity, but nothing more than that for sure. This collective imagination informed by secular, scientific, and humanitist suppositions and prejudices has been clashing increasingly with the scriptural and theological imagination that Gaudium at Space 22, and especially also Vatican II's dogmatic constitutional divine revelation, De Varabum 11, enjoins us to develop an imagination informed by the reading of the Holy Scriptures through the eyes of faith, with a strong expectation that while inconsistent in appearance, reason and revelation will turn out to be consistent in fact. To remind you, some of you know it by heart, but others maybe not, as the Council Fathers remind the faithful in De Verbum 11, quote, those divinely revealed realities which are contained and presented in sacred scripture have been committed to writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For Holy Mother Church, relying on the belief of the apostles, holds that the books of both the Old and New Testaments in their entirety, with all their parts, are sacred and canonical because written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they have God as their author and have been handed on as such to the Church herself. In composing the sacred books, God chose men while employed by him they made use of their powers and abilities so that with him acting in them and through them, they, as true authors, consigned to writing everything and only those things which he wanted. Therefore, since everything asserted by the inspired authors or sacred writers must be held to be asserted by the Holy Spirit, it follows that the books of Scripture must be acknowledged as teaching solidly, faithfully, and without error, the truth which God wanted to put into sacred writings for the sake of salvation, unquote. The teaching of Dei Verbum 11 is the positive aspect of which a little-known statement of Aquinas is the corresponding negative aspect. St. Thomas departs from his restrained rhetoric and consistently formal discussion in the Prima Secunde of the Summa, Question 103, Article 4, responds to the second objection and states there quite directly that it is wicked, nefas est, to believe that there is something false in the canonical scriptures. Nefas est credere falsum in canonica scriptura. A strong claim. Let me point out three crucial presuppositions held by Aquinas and largely shared by Dei Verbum as entailments of the affirmations just quoted. These presuppositions support the formation of a properly formed scriptural and theological imagination that is able to receive in an uninhibited and undistorted way the salvation historical fact of the homo supernaturalis. First, 
Aquinas takes it for granted that the original state, as well as its loss and all that this loss entails, and finally what the overcoming of this loss, human redemption, means and entails, can only be known about by way of divine revelation and its inspired record, the canon of the Holy Scriptures. The decrees of the divine will and their execution can be known in no other way than by way of God's own communication that is, by way of revelation and received by faith. The only one that knows revelation, to use the apt expression of Romano Guardini, conveys through the inspired scriptures, by way of the literary genres used in their respective composition, that truth which God wanted to put into sacred writings for the sake of salvation, as Dei Verbum 11 puts it. And it is this that should inform the theological imagination in a fundamental and primary way. Second, biblical typology. Here specifically the Adam Christ typology of St. Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 5, discloses the theological significance of correlated figures and events of salvation history. It seems to be an inescapable entailment of the literal sense of Romans 5, Romans 5 that the Adam referred to is as much a fact of salvation history as the Christ that is referred to is. Gaudium at Space 22 seems to agree implicitly with this supposition. An exclusive reading of Adam as the collective personality representing humanity as a whole, or Israel in particular, would open the legitimate question why such an exclusive collective reading should not obtain also for Christ as the collective personality of the new Adam, representing the new humanity as a whole, gathered as the ecclesial body of Christ, totus Adam and totus Christus. In both cases, a salvation historical meaning unmoored from its referent, a specific salvation historical fact. David Strauss, the 19th century Protestant critical exegete in his late life of Jesus from 1870, would, would have very much liked that. Christ was as much a myth as Adam would have been, concocted by the disciples. So, it is difficult, if not impossible, to sustain such an interpretation without gravely distorting if not simply undercutting the overall Christology and soteriology that governs the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. While the Adam-Christ typology can arguably be also read with an inclusive meaning, connoting in each case also a collective personality, such a reading, I would submit, has to presuppose nevertheless the facticity and unique salvation historical role of each pole of the typology, Adam as well as Christ. Third, the fall is by implication of the very theological logic of the Adam-Christ typology to be understood as a salvation historical event and not as a mere etiological myth conveying a salvation historical meaning. It is far from impossible for the salvation historical event also to serve an etiological function, yet it is from the former, the salvation historical event, with universal impact for the entire human family, that the latter arises. It is hard to see how one can save the latter while dispensing with the former. The mythopoetical narrative of sin 
of the first parents presupposes necessarily an antecedent state superior to the post-fall state, however construed in detail, some gratuitous state of proximate perfection of human existence, short of the beatific vision, spiritually, intellectually, volitionally, and physically. Since the fall is primarily an estrangement from God, the prior state has to be conceived as a state characterized by a right relation with God, indeed, in short, as a state of original justice. I submit that St. Thomas conceives of what I call the homo supernaturalis as the theological truth that the canonical scriptures convey, Genesis 3 and Romans 5, read in light of the mystery of Christ. He takes the state of original justice and the fall to be salvation historical events, not unlike the calling of Abraham, Israel's liberation from bondage in Egypt and wandering in the desert for 40 years, the calling of the prophets, the birth of Christ, his ministry, passion, death, and resurrection, and the sending of the Holy Spirit. Or let's say the conversion of St. Paul, as we just had the feast. There might be quite a considerable distance of time between all these events, but this distance per se does not affect the veracity of any of these salvation historical facts. Because the whole divine economy of salvation as conveyed by divine revelation presupposes it, Aquinas considers carefully the original state of the first human beings. They are constituted as rational animals by receiving from God directly as the substantial form of their body a rational soul that is an incorruptible spiritual substantial form that distinguishes human beings as species from all other animals, including from what later theologians would have called pre-Adamites and what now might be called pre-human ancestors, that is, from all hominids. Aquinas takes original justice to denote a state marked by full harmony and right order in relationship to God, to creation, to the other, and to oneself. Original humanity was subject to God and open to God's promptings. Within the human being, the different powers of the lower soul, the sensitive powers which pertain to sensation and emotions, were subject to the rule of reason, and the mind and the will were subject to God. This ordo justitiae, this original ordered rightness, was gratuitously bestowed by God so that the human being would be primordially in right relationship with God, not only qua person, but also in regard to specific human nature as a whole, in its own interior constitution in relation to God. As St. Thomas stresses in his account in the Summa Theologiae, original justice is not a property inherent to human nature, but rather gratuitous, an additional divine gift freely bestowed by God on created human nature as a whole, and not individually on the first human being qua person. In Summa Theologiae, question 100, article 1, Aquinas puts the matter quite explicitly. Original justice in the rectitude of which the first human being was made was an accident belonging to the nature of the species, not in the sense that it was caused by the principles of the species, 
but in the sense that it was a special gift given by God to the nature as a whole, unquote. And later in Prima Secunde, Question 81, Article 2, St. Thomas states that, quote, original justice was a particular gift of grace divinely bestowed upon all human nature in the first parents, unquote. Hence, according to Aquinas, original justice is not something owed by God to the constitution of human nature itself, so that its loss would cripple human nature in such an irreversibly detrimental way that bereft of original justice, human nature would become inherently deficient and its powers intrinsically skewed. Rather, original justice is a pure gratuity, an accident given to human nature that perfects it on the natural level. It is a help, auxilium, granted by God to human nature to set its highest power reason in right relation to God and thereby to overcome the defects connatural to human nature as composed of body and rational soul. In Summa Theologiae 1, question 97, article 1, Aquinas argues that the indissolubility of the body of original humanity was not due to some intrinsic vigor of immortality that the body had, unlike the resurrection body, but, quote, by reason of a supernatural force given by God to the soul. In erat anime vis quedam supernaturaliter divinitus data, whereby it was enabled to preserve the body from all corruption so long as it remained itself subject to God, unquote. This is a very important point I shall return to later. The root cause of earthly paradise is, I would claim, the quasi-supernatural strength given by God to the soul as such. That is, to the nature of original humanity in the state of original justice, in virtue of the perfect submission of mind and will to God, a quasi-supernatural strength that would radiate through the whole human body-soul composite and in this way, so to speak, constitute earthly paradise. To put it differently, the homo supernaturalis cannot walk out of paradise like out of a garden. Rather, wherever the homo supernaturalis is, there is paradise. The root radix of the state of paradise is the gift of justitia originalis and the loss of the latter, original justice, is identical with the loss of the former, the state of paradise, with all its preternatural entailments. Maybe I'm going, maybe I'm not going too far in suggesting that the distinct property that constitutes earthly paradise is identical with integral nature. Integral nature denotes human nature from its very beginning equipped with original justice and refers to the total natural and preternatural equipment in its integral order intrinsically and especially toward God that original humanity received, yet abstracted from sanctifying grace. And with this part, now I'm turning to that part of the, of the lecture that according to German lecture should be unintelligible. I'm turning to the part in which I'm talking now with Thomists in the Thomist tradition. 
Uh, this is unavoidable in a lecture to the House of Studies. Uh, so it's what we are turning to now, just as a pre-warning for some of you what, what's going to happen now. Uh, with his last observation, we have reached the crucial question pertaining to the theologically relevant constitution of original humanity. What is the relationship between original justice and sanctifying grace? As every student of St. Thomas's work knows only all too well, his argument unfolds in a highly condensed, always formal and often abbreviated way, such that entailments of his position, if not immediately necessary for the argument at hand in the order discipline, the order of learning, do in fact remain all too often unstated. One of these cases is the relationship between the gift of original justice and sanctifying grace. Can human nature receive the gift of original justice independently from the person receiving sanctifying grace? Can original justice be considered as to its essence in complete distinction from sanctifying grace? In other words, are the two adequately distinct? Or is it on the contrary the case that sanctifying grace is the necessary prerequisite of original justice, so that it might be appropriate to take sanctifying grace as the form and original justice as the matter of the one reality of the original state. In other words, are they only inadequately distinct? Or is it the case that what the one unduly separates, this would be the position of essentialism, the other unduly conflates the position of formalism. Is there an interpretation that integrates the strengths of formalism and essentialism and avoids their weaknesses? I will suggest there is, and this matters for the homo supernaturalis. I am now going to paint with an all too broad brush, bracketing many subtle conceptual and historical details in order not to lose sight of the forest for the trees. As far as I can see, there are three basic proposals under discussion among Thomists, of which I adopt the third one because it seems to integrate successfully the strengths of the first two and overcome their respective shortcomings. There is first the position that one might call formalism. According to this position, original justice consists both in sanctifying grace and in preternatural gifts. Original justice considered in its totality is the gratuitous gift added to human nature by God. It implies perfect subjection of the soul to God through sanctifying grace, which is the formal element of the justice itself. This formal element causes the subjection of the lower faculties to reason and the body to the soul. The lesser subjections are the material element of the justice. Grace is the root and cause of both subjections. Therefore, in order that original justice be original justice, it must include sanctifying grace as its formal element. And if grace is its formal element, then it is inadequately distinct from original justice considered as a whole. This explanation has been constructed in these terms in order to satisfactorily explain what St. Thomas meant when he said that sanctifying grace was the radix, the root of original justice. 
For if grace is the root of original justice, then it must be intrinsic to it and be its formal cause. Yet in Compendium, chapter 196, as the Dominican students here, I'm sure, know only all too well, Thomas maintains that original justice is a gift to human nature, whereas sanctifying grace is a personal gift. In order to avoid any difficulties on this score, formalism maintained that original justice is a gift to nature in the sense that it is given to the first man, not qua person, but inasmuch as he is the principle of human nature. Since sanctifying grace is the formal element of original justice, and since, formal element, since this formal element is personal, it cannot belong to the common nature as an accident of it. Formalism, in some variations, has been the widely shared position of the Thomist school since the Council of Trent. Only in the earlier part of the 20th century did a closer study of Thomas Aquinas' own original position across his complete opus, especially his sentence commentary, lead to a re-evaluation and revision of the received interpretation. Let us call this theory essentialism. The essentialist theory sharply distinguishes between original justice and sanctifying grace, holding without reservation that grace is not the formal cause of original justice. They assert that St. Thomas conceived of original justice as a gift of nature. Grace, according to the interpretation of St. Thomas, is a personal gift. And as such, original justice and sanctifying grace are adequately distinct. The essentialists take the formal cause of original justice to be the natural subjection of the reason to God. Its material cause consists in the subjection of the lower faculties to the higher and the body to the soul. Original justice is the preternatural rectitude of nature as such. Original justice is to be considered the whole constituted from its parts, namely the subjection of the reason to God, formal cause, subjection of the lower faculties, etc., the material cause. Therefore, they argue, the subjection of the reason to God is distinct from original justice as part is distinct from the whole, inadequately. But in this case, sanctifying grace is extrinsic to the essential composition of original justice and must of necessity be adequately so distinct. Essentialists called grace the efficient cause of original justice and claimed a reciprocal causality between efficient cause and what they called the dispositive cause. The reciprocal causality was, according to essentialism, operative in this way. Original justice is the effect of grace efficient cause, and at the same time is the dispositive cause for the reception of grace. Thus, grace causes original justice efficiently, original justice causes grace dispositively. There is, however, one key problem that remains for essentialism in this regard. According to Aquinas, reciprocal causality obtains only between a formal and a material cause, and not between an efficient and a dispositive, there's also a material cause. 
Hence, in the end, the essentialist proposal does not carry through for metaphysical reasons that Aquinas himself would have held and defended. There's a third position that seems to integrate the strengths of the formalist and the essentialist interpretations. It's close to home here. Um, it builds on the work of the Thomist scholar De Latter, published in a very famous journal that I highly recommend, The Thomist, uh, and that appeared in the year 1962 on Aquinas' theological application of reciprocal form metacausality. Highly interesting article. And was articulated a bit later by Conan Gallagher in his noteworthy 1966 CUA STD dissertation. It seems to me that Gallagher has achieved the superior synthesis that in the following I shall make my own. Transcending the competing Thomist positions of essentialism, that's the 20th century um, um, more historicist school, we can say, and uh, that of formalism, the position of traditional Thomism after trend, Gallagher interprets in my eyes accurately Aquinas' own mature position as one in which the relationship between sanctifying grace and original justice is conceived as a paradigmatic case of the reciprocal form metacausality, with God being the efficient cause of both, the immediate efficient cause of both. Since Gallagher's excellent study is not easy to access, you have to dig it out of Mullen Library, I shall indulge your patience by citing a crucial passage at length. Quote, Sanctifying grace, since it is a created participation of the divine nature and exceeds the order of nature, is something extraneous to human nature. In fact, it raises human nature to a higher order, that is the order of the supernatural. As such, it necessarily is an endowment of an individual nature, that is, of the person. Sanctifying grace, since it is, an extrane since it is extraneous to human nature, cannot be given to the nature considered in itself. The specific, generic, and common nature could not receive such a perfection without this perfection entailing a change in the species. Human nature is simply and absolutely incapable of receiving a perfection of this type and still remain human nature. Only the nature as subsistent, that is the person, is capable of receiving such a perfection. Sanctifying grace as an accident of the person acts formally on the total supposit causing the human being to be homo supernaturalis. As such, it elevates and qualifies the supposit and all the supposits contains. Thus, the natural rectitude of nature, which was preternaturalized through the reception of original justice, is now supernaturalized by reason of the personal reception of sanctifying grace. The natural rectitude has been subsumed into the preternatural, and the preternatural rectitude or condition has now been subsumed into the supernatural order. We are, of course, not talking about a chronological sequence here, but about an ontological order of causal reciprocity. On the basis of the extraneous nature of sanctifying grace, then, we must exclude it from inhering in the specific or common nature and maintain that it inheres in the person, as in its proper subject 
and by doing so qualifies the entire supposit. So original justice, on the other hand, then, we may ask, what is that now? Original justice, though a preternatural good, is nothing more or nothing less than integrity of nature. As such, original justice excludes from its essential composition sanctifying grace. Looked at essentially, original justice is original justice considered in itself independently of grace. Sanctifying grace is not the formal determining element of original justice accounting for its being, but sanctifying grace is related to original justice as formal cause. Certainly not in the sense of an intrinsic determining element establishing the essence of original justice. Rather, sanctifying grace adds something to original justice through the medium of the person. The result of this addition of sanctifying grace to the person is the natural rectitude of nature being now supernaturalized. Reason and will now possess a supernatural orientation to God. As persuasively argued by Gallagher, according to St. Thomas, the homo supernaturalis is from the beginning the true human being as originally intended by God. We are leaving now the Thomistic forest back onto the highway um, and uh, 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 turn to the homo supernaturalis as conceived by Gallagher's synthesis. The homo supernaturalis in the existential order of salvation history is inchoately realized human teleology in its right original ordo. The triune God who is love in act is from the very beginning the efficient cause and the final end of this salvation historical ordo. St. Thomas states in his treatise on grace Question 113 in the Prima Secunde, Article 2. God's love, Delectio Dei, considered on the part of the divine act, is eternal and unchangeable. Now the effect of the divine love in us is grace, whereby a human is made worthy of eternal life, from which sin shuts him out, unquote. This effect of divine love in the homo supernaturalis is precisely the gift of original justice to specific human nature as such, the formal extrinsic root of which is sanctifying grace. As the Nigerian Dominican father John Mark Ukekukwu stated in his very fine recent doctoral dissertation, completed and defended here the Dominican House of Studies, quote, the motive of God's action is always intrinsic since God as pure act is not actuated by something extrinsic to his being. Thus, the divine will by which God ordains things is not moved by something outside of God, but is the divine love, which is the principal act of the divine will. This is related to uh, a Prima Paris Question 20, Article 1 by Father John Mark, unquote. On the part of God, divine love is the cause of the incarnation. On the part of humans, the effect of the incarnation is the remedy of sin and the restoration of the divine likeness. Analogously, on the part of God, divine love is the cause of the creation and integral constitution 
in supernatural original justice of the homo supernaturalis. On the part of the human, the effect is the divine likeness, the inchoate communion with God, and the de facto ordination to the one surpassing final end, the beatific vision. Gifted with integral nature, elevated by sanctifying grace, the homo supernaturalis thus lives in an incipient communion with God, primordially caused by God, and constituted by way of the reciprocal form metacausality of sanctifying grace and original justice, in complete personal submission of intellect and will to God, realizing thereby constantly the constitutive act of the virtue of religion, and by all the other powers, in virtue of integral nature, rightly ordered among each other and submitted to intellect and will. This existence has its apex in the very presence of the first cause and its supreme effect, the indwelling of the divine persons in the sanctified soul of the homo supernaturalis, the latter beginning to live in God through acts of faith, hope, and charity. The divine likeness is brought about by the created effect of the indwelling deity, sanctifying grace and ritual justice, constituting reciprocally the supernatural existence of the homo supernaturalis, the life and love of God, a likeness to be increasingly perfected in ever greater deformity to acts of faith, hope, and charity. It is nothing but the very life of God communicated to the sanctified soul that actualizes the existence of the homo supernaturalis with a supernatural strength characteristic of original justice, such that natural finitude and natural death are present only in potency. Integral nature is finitized, or finitized, I should say. I'm sometimes forcing English words. Uh, finitized, neither by the death of decomposition, nor by the anticipation of this death during the life characteristic of rational animals. Rather, integral nature is finitized only by the participated act of being, which always entails a potency toward non-being. And the latter entails, in turn, the principle of defectibility in the order of action. That is the ever-present potency not to consider the rule, and hence, when acting without considering the rule in pursuit of some alleged good, to sin, and thereby to reduce and distort the realization of what Sir Pinkeus felicitously called the freedom of excellence, the graced actualization of ever-deeper union with the final end, life in God, to its mere skeletal condition, the negative freedom of choice. Paradise puts into the modality of space and locality the preternatural effects of what is intrinsic to integral nature elevated by grace, inchoate communion with and in God by way of a nature in which the proper ordo is realized from the very beginning. Paradise thus is the effect of the quasi-supernatural strength given by God to the soul, and through the soul radiating onto all parts of the human composite nature. Wherever integral nature obtains in the existential order of the person, there is paradise. And so, according to Aquinas, the via salutis begins with the human being created by God from the beginning as an incipient participant in the life of God, 
within the order of a paradisical peregrinatio of meritorious grace that would eventually be surpassingly perfected and completed in the beatific vision. While sin and death are absent from this primordial via salutis, their potency is not absent due to the principle of defectibility inherent actually in all created finite beings. The homo supernaturalis becomes visible, so to speak, only to the eyes of faith by way of revelation and its definitive witness, the Holy Scriptures. To the empirical sciences, paleoanthropology and paleogenetics, the salvation historical facticity of the homo supernaturalis has to remain an essentially hidden reality, as hidden as the creatio ex nihilo from astrophysics, as the resurrection of Christ from critical historiography and archaeology, and as the infusion of sanctifying grace from empirical psychology. Paleoanthropology and paleogenetics can only trace and to a certain degree reconstruct with lesser or greater probability the conditions for the possibility of ascertaining the non-contradiction, if not compatibility, between the deliveries of the natural sciences and the givens of the faith. It is at precisely this point that the important recent work of the authors of Thomistic Evolution, especially by Father Nicanor Ostriago, the forthcoming book by Father Marius Tapacek, Theistic Evolution, a Contemporary Aristotelian Thomistic Perspective, William Craig Lane's In Quest of the Historical Adam, and last but not least also the work by Kenneth W. Kemp come into the picture and have their indispensable significance. The salvation historical truth and theological significance of the homo supernaturalis can, however, only be accessed by way of divine revelation, by way of its inspired witness and through the eyes of faith. The facticity of the homo supernaturalis can either be proven or disproven because the existence of the homo supernaturalis is the effect of a composite divine gift that is as such not traceable by the empirical sciences but remains hidden as an effect of God's transcendent immediate causality. Only the all-knowing revelation knows about what was in the beginning and only with the calling of Abraham, the creation of Israel out of Egypt, and through the desert into the people of God, does the revelation of the homo supernaturalis take shape, only to be definitively revealed through the incarnate Lord himself and through the inspired apostolic witness about him. The essential hiddenness of the homo supernaturalis from the gaze of the empirical, statistical, and computational sciences does not amount to an appeal to the God of the gaps. There is no gap here, but rather our encounter with the divine communication of an occasion of the causality of the transcendent first cause in those created effects, original justice with all its preternatural entailments, sanctifying grace with the infused virtues of faith, hope, and uh, charity, that do not leave any genetic traces after they have been forfeited. Looking for such traces is like examining the genetic code of St. Therese of Lisieux, in order to determine whether she died in a state of grace. It is simply a category mistake. As the Thomist theologian Charles Cardinal Chonet, one of the favorite theologians of Pope Paul VI, once put it, quote, The earthly paradise is no myth. It is the first effect of God's love for man, of the incomprehensible tenderness of his love. 
God conferred on him from the start the supernatural gift of sanctifying grace, which made him an adoptive son in whom the divine persons might dwell. We might regard the first man as having been in a psychologically primitive state, very primitive even. He had, of course, his immortal soul, a great power of intuition, but complete absence of experience. And in this soul was original grace with its preternatural gifts, giving to the passions and instincts the sleep of love. Unquote. And Raisa Marita displays a theologically informed imagination very much in the spirit of St. John Henry Newman when she states, quote, There is nothing to stop us imagining the body of this man, she means the Homo supernaturalis, free from all trace of degradation, as nearer to the primitive types, in spite of perhaps enormous distances of time, and ruling out the marks of degeneration these may have, nearer to the primitive types studied in prehistory and anthropology than the developed types which the canons of the Egyptian and Greek artists have taught us to consider as the supreme human exemplars." Unquote. If salvation history indeed embraces human history from beginning to end, and only if it does, is it truly salvation history? Then the Via Salutis begins with the Homo Supernaturalis, as the all-knowing one revelation teaches, according to Aquinas, in light of its last and definitive word, the incarnate word himself and his authoritative apostolic witness, St. Paul. From the beginning it was not so, Jesus states in Matthew 19a, because in the beginning was the Homo Supernaturalis. In the beginning God made the human right, in right relation with God, in original grace, and hence worthy of eternal life. This right relation with God in the beginning is a created participation in the life of God, an incipient full communion in the act of love that is God. And this is a life of original charity and original, in original bliss and friendship with God. This is the divine likeness that was lost and that Christ came to restore in a most surpassing way. It is this, the truth of the Homo Supernaturalis, that the Dr. Angelicus teaches, a teaching I would submit we cannot afford to ignore even today, a teaching that should ever more deeply inform our theological imagination so that we may be able to receive in an ever deeper way the teaching of Gaudium et Space. 22. I thank you for your attention. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.